Creative, expertise, technology, patents, and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. Of course, you can learn more about our firm at LALaw.com. On today's show, we're going to discuss a recent Supreme Court decision. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Golan v. Holder, a decision that upheld a law that restored copyright protection to foreign works that were once in the public domain. This decision makes it clear that Congress has broad discretion with regard to intellectual property protection. Now, how did this case come to the Supreme Court, and what does the holding mean going forward? Joining me today is a returning guest, Professor Mary Wong, director of the Franklin Pierce Center for Intellectual Property at the University of New Hampshire School of Law. Mary and the school, uh, under the name Franklin Pierce uh, Center for Intellectual Property, filed a brief in support of respondents, which was the government, um, that was indeed cited by the Supreme Court in its decision. Welcome to IP Council, Mary. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, let's talk about this case. I think it's, um, we were just chit-chatting um, over the, since the decision on uh, January 18th, and um, one could read it narrowly, but of course it's, uh, it, it's holding um, might have broader implications. But before we get to the actual holding, perhaps we can just, uh, for our listeners, talk a little bit about the procedural history and how it got to the Supreme Court. Sure. And um, it's, it can get a little complicated because, as in a number of other IP cases we've seen before, there's several decisions going up and down on appeal and remanded back down to the district court, and it happened in this case. In fact, if you talk to people familiar with the history, they'll talk to you about Golan 1, Golan 2, Golan 3, and Golan 4 before going up to the Supreme Court. So obviously my students hated it, but at least now they just have to read the Supreme Court's language. Um, essentially, this particular appeal came out of the final decision from the ups and downs in the Tenth Circuit. Um, the issues really didn't change all that much. And obviously, as most people know, the Supreme Court will take a case um, on a number of important policy grounds. One, if there's a split between the circuits. Another, if it impacts a big um, policy, such as a potential clash between various parts of the Constitution or whether there are specific constitutional issues. And that really was the ultimate issue that reached the Supreme Court. Because in this case, the petitioners were a group of performers, conductors, uh, people who used creative works and copyrighted works in music uh, primarily. And because a lot of that music was considered in the public domain in the United States, 
For example, they would have been works that were once protected by copyright protection, but that protection had lapsed. Additionally, there were also foreign works, such as works by foreign composers, Shostakovich, Stravinsky, and a number of very popular works by these composers that were not protected under the U.S. copyright law. And so they could be used freely, obviously, at least in this country. So what had happened was that Congress had passed a law which... The word we use is restoration, although as I'll explain, it may not technically be restoration as what the general public would view it to be. But essentially, a lot of the foreign works, such as the composers and their works that I mentioned, were placed under U.S. copyright protection. And there were certain groups of works which were classified in this way, essentially works that had fallen into the public domain in the United States, but were still protected in their home countries for example, Russia. And the reason they had fallen into the public domain in the United States was because they had failed to comply with a procedural requirement under U.S. law. That was probably the large, um, most problematic category. Mm -hmm. There were two other categories of works that had their protection restored, and those would be foreign works in nations where the United States did not have particular treaty reciprocity, as well as some works that were not protected in the United States up to a certain point in time. But as I said, it was the first category. A lot of foreign works that were considered in the public domain in the United States, but by this act of Congress, essentially were placed under U.S. protection. So the petitioners essentially said that this was tantamount to removing works from the public domain that runs entirely counter to the purpose of U.S. copyright law, and also raise very important free speech and First Amendment concerns. So a number of the decisions prior to the Supreme Court had wrestled with this issue. For example, whether or not this kind of legislation does regulate speech, um, the proper standard of review for these kinds of uh, bills and so forth. I see. So let's uh, let's backtrack just a little bit. Uh, the The law that uh, gave these foreign works um, or restored copyright in these foreign works. Um, is, was that the 1994 uh, Uruguay Round Agreements Act? That's right. It was the Uruguay Round Agreements Act. Um, particularly this provision that we're going to be talking about was Section 514. But as you'll notice by the name of the act, this was an important act for the U.S. because this essentially implemented all the agreements relating to the World Trade Organization or the WTO, including intellectual property aspects of it. And as everyone knows, um, the Uruguay round morphed into the WTO around that time. So this was an important act for the United States as a member of the new WTO to pass. So by virtue of the United States joining uh, and adopting the Berne Convention, then they had to pass legislation, uh, which they did in 1994, which um, affected um, theretofore or, or up to that point um, uh, copyright works that were in the public domain. Well, here's an interesting fact, Peter. Um, if Congress, and this is me speculating entirely, if Congress had done something slightly different or slightly differently in 1989. And um, these dates are important because, as we said, 1994 was the WTO, so the Uruguay Round Agreements Act, or the URAA, essentially implemented 
the trade aspects of U.S. policy, if you like. But if you backtrack to 1989, just several years before that, that was, as you say, when the U.S. joined the Berne Convention, where therefore our copyright laws um, had to be examined to make sure they were in full compliance with that international treaty, the Berne Convention. Similar exercises have to take place every time there is an international treaty to which we sign up as a party, and since treaties are not self-executing in the United States, we need domestic implementing legislation. But the reason why I said there was a curious fact in 1989 was the reason why this entire hoo-ha or issue came about is that in the Berne Convention itself, in Article 18, there is a provision that says all the provisions of this convention will apply to all member countries. So essentially, Berne Convention provisions are something that each country has to make sure it follows in its own laws. And the United States, when we actually changed our copyright law in the 70s, um, tried to do that in a number of ways. One of the Berne Convention's big prescriptions is that there should be no formalities associated with the acquisition or the exercise of a right under the copyright law. Mm-hmm. And as you know, the United States, up to very recently, up to the 70s, as I said, had a fairly clunky mechanism for obtaining federal copyright protection. You had to register at the Copyright Office, you had to publish a notice, and you know, at some point, you had to renew the copyright. So this was really why I say one of the biggest problems and the big category that the Golan case was concerned with was foreign works, because a lot of foreign authors did not enjoy copyright protection in the United States because they failed to comply with our clunky formalities procedure. So if we fast forward then to 1989 and our implementation of the Berne Convention, we could have simply just done something then, um, which may have well been similar to what became 514 of the URAA, but we actually chose, or Congress chose, a very minimalist approach in 1989 And so between 1989 and 1994, there were a lot of discussions. There was certainly a bunch of hearings. And I can tell you when we were doing research for our brief, to look at 1,200 pages of congressional testimony is not fun. (laughs) Uh, But essentially, because we did not address in 1989 that part of the Berne Convention that talked about protection for works of all countries, we did it in 1994, several years later, through the URAA. I see. Okay. And what type of uh, balancing then? Um, certainly Congress was aware of the potential, or I, I'm, I'm supposing Congress was aware of the potential that this might raise a First Amendment challenge as became the case in the, uh, in the Golan uh, procedural. Mm-hmm. You know, what was interesting, again, going through the congressional history, was that initially, and it's not always that explicitly made in terms of connections, but initially it was very, it would seem quite clear to me that the, congr- the uh, constitutional concern that was raised at the time, you know, between 1989 and ultimately with the solution that they adopted in 1994, the concern was actually not so much the First Amendment. It was identified as a concern, but the other constitutional concern that was identified that folks thought was more problematic was the Fifth Amendment, a takings clause. Ah, 
Okay. So it, it, for whatever reason, you know, in the late 80s, obviously con- Congress doing its homework would identify all the problematic areas, particularly where they have constitutional impact. But it was really the Fifth Amendment that caught most people's attention. And over time, um, it was determined that that was really not so much of an issue. And then, as you say, with respect to the First Amendment question, the ultimate legislation that became Section 514 adopted some balancing mechanisms. So essentially, it wasn't just with one automatic fell swoop and a presidential signature, you know, every foreign work in every single country um, that was a member of the Berne Convention suddenly got U.S. copyright protection for you know, life plus 50 years at the time. Um, there were a number of things that one had to look out for. So it said the essential mechanism they chose was that in order for a foreign work to have its protection reinstated in the United States, the very important precondition and this is something that is echoed in the Berne Convention, is that that foreign work still has to be under copyright protection in its home country. So if it's in the public domain in, say, Russia, there's no way it could be revived in the United States. So that was a pretty important limitation and precondition. Then secondly, in order to enjoy the reinstated U.S. protection, the copyright owner had to serve a notice of his or her intent to reinstate that copyright. And there was a mechanism to do that through the Copyright Office initially after the legislation was passed, but after a certain time, I believe it was two years, that notice had to be served um, directly by the copyright owner, uh, not through the Copyright Office. So the copyright owner you know, couldn't just sit back and do nothing. They had to actually assert themselves and file a notice. And in addition, there was a one-year grace period for existing users and finally, if someone, you know, throughout that whole period where the foreign work was not protected under U.S. law, for example, as I said, because the Russian composer failed to register in the United States or failed to renew the copyright, if someone in the U.S. had created what we call a derivative work, then they could continue to exploit that derivative work which they created if they paid a reasonable royalty to the copyright owner. And that reasonable royalty could be determined either through mutual agreement or if that couldn't be reached um, through a decision in the district court. So there was a series of different mechanisms combined with limitations that, to me, showed that Congress was very well aware that it couldn't simply just say, we're going to remove all these things from the public domain. It really tried to accommodate, I think, the interests of the foreign rights holders and they had to do something to get their copyright back, as well as the interests of the general public, many of whom would either have been used to making use of a number of these works or may even have created derivative works. So they did choose mm. a particularly calibrated mechanism for that. I see. Well, then um, it sounds all reasonable, uh, but what, what then was Golan and the petitioner's um, case based upon? And wasn't it somewhat... Um, similar, uh, or was a similar issue raised uh, several years earlier in 2003 decision by the Supreme Court, the uh, Eldred v. Ashcroft case? Absolutely. And um, you're right on both counts in the sense of one wonders when you first hear about this case, what the 
arguments could be after the decision by the Supreme Court in Eldred just a few years ago, um, and also what was so special about the public domain argument, because, you know, even in our remarks up to now, we've kept talking about it, and that was really the crux of it. Um, essentially, the argument that was made in Golan that was phrased differently, and the court, you know, took some trouble with that ultimately in its decision, was that in Eldred, there was no removal of the works from the public domain. Essentially, it concerned the extension of copyright term protection. So if you like, it may have postponed the entry of some works into the public domain because, as you recall, in the Eldred case, the legislation at issue was an extension of the term of copyright protection for another 20 years. Mm -hmm. So the effect in Eldred by the court, the Supreme Court upholding that legislation was that works would not enter the public domain for another 20 years is a postponement. Whereas in Golan, the issue was not even a postponement, but that things were already in the public domain and we were taking it back and putting it under some form of monopoly protection. I mean, that formed the crux of the argument. And this all then harkened back to the words of the so-called progress clause in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, which gives Congress the power to confer exclusive rights for limited times on patents and copyrights, essentially. And this was the constitutional provision discussed in Eldred. The question then was, is there anything different about the Golan case, either because of the issue of the public domain or because of other considerations where the court might then be justified in saying that we're going to take a different route from what we did in Eldred? Because as I mentioned, in Eldred, they upheld the Copyright Term Extension Act, and it wasn't entirely clear that they would simply do the same thing here with Section 514. It wasn't, uh, um, I guess what I'm asking as well is, is what, were, what were petitioners' arguments around uh, First Amendment? It really revolved around the public domain issue okay. writ large because um, the briefs, for example, of the petitioners and a number of their amity was that the public domain is an inviolate principle. They called it a bedrock principle of copyright law, and there's a number of principles in copyright law that have been called bedrock principles. <laughs> so the argument was that once something is in the public domain, it stays there. And so even with the broad latitude, well, I'm not sure they actually acknowledged that Congress had a broad latitude under the Progress Clause, but the argument was that once something is in the public domain, it belongs to all of us, that the public then has vested rights which are ownership rights, essentially, in that material, and it simply cannot be removed. So this was not an argument that they had made in Eldred. I see. Okay. But how did they reconcile that argument with the Eldred decision? Oh, I see what you're asking. Yeah. Um, and this is really where they had the most difficulty, and that's why I said they focused on this, the policy issue being the public domain issue, and with respect to... 514 itself, they focused on the term of protection. So, for example, here they said that the term of protection for these foreign works that we've talked about was zero. Whereas, again, like I said, in Eldred, they contrasted that and said this wasn't um, really the issue. The issue was that, you know, now you're adding 20 to existing works. 
So the starting point, I think, was a little bit different. That in Eldred, they were talking about existing works that were protected under U.S. copyright law. And so the question really was doing a plus 20. Whereas here, you're talking about works that were never protected under U.S. law. So you were talking about a starting point of zero. If I don't sound very convincing in my explanation of the petitioner's argument, <laughs> I should say that that really was the it was the same question that bothered me, Peter, that the one you asked. I, mean, I can see the reasons why right. they would want to bring the case. I mean, certainly, I think if you are a, a nonprofit or an orchestra and a conductor or a music student, or, and there's a lot of, you know, as we know, struggling orchestras and, and performing houses in, in the United States, you can see why this might be a problem, because suddenly you're going to say, well, I'm not sure I can perform Stravinsky, and Stravinsky is what brings in the subscriptions, for example. Right. But in terms of the actual arguments, I couldn't really see a way around Eldred, because I think that's really the question that you're asking. Right, right. And, you know, I'm, I am on a board of a of a local uh, of the Boston Philharmonic, and I, I have to admit being somewhat sympathetic to petitioner's position until I uh, read the fuller picture and understood the the treaty requirements and and really how balanced I believe the uh, the statute was. But um, we need to take a short break right there, and uh, when we return, more with Professor Mary Wong. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today, we are joined by Professor Mary Wong, director of the Franklin Pierce Center for Intellectual Property at the University of New Hampshire School of Law, and we've been discussing the Golan v. Holder copyright decision from January 2012 and uh, discussing the how it got to the Supreme Court and the decision itself. Um, where we left off um, uh, was, was the decision, and I, I wanted to touch a little on uh, the dissent and um, what what the Justice Breyer and uh, I guess Alito joined him, what, what he was uh, going at there. Mm -hmm. um, so, Peter, I think when we were chatting, I pointed this out, and I thought this might be interesting for listeners, is that if you look at the composition of the bench, or certainly the opinions of the court in this case, first of all, um, Justice Kagan couldn't take part in the court's deliberations, because when this case first came up, she was the Solicitor General. So clearly, um, there were problems with her sitting on this case. That left us eight judges. And the Golan case was a 6-2 decision, with Justice Ginsburg writing the majority opinion. She also wrote the majority opinion in the Eldred case that we were talking about. And as we said, this case, there are a lot of parallels between this case and Eldred. So it was not really surprising to most people that Justice Ginsburg would do that. The question was how many justices would take that position as well. It was therefore also not a surprise that Justice Breyer, who wrote one of the two dissents in Eldred, also wrote, to my mind, a fairly strong dissent here, in which, as you mentioned, he was joined by Justice Alito. So in some ways, if you look at the, these two judges without going too much into you know, motivations and so forth, you, you see that neither of them had changed their minds between Eldred 
and Golan. And I found what Breyer's, Justice Breyer's dissent really interesting on, on a number of levels. First of all, the fact that, you know, he continued to, to warn about the overreach of um, copyright. And I have to say, Peter, that even though on behalf of the center, I filed a brief in support of the government, um, I'm not unsympathetic to a number of the arguments made by the petitioners and, and their amici, nor are there things about Brad's judgment that aren't disturbing to me in the sense of he is right about a number of things. Um, for example, what's one of the things that struck me about his judgment was he really pointed out, and this is important for many of us that study and study these areas, that we can look at the conceptual theoretical framework. We can look at what makes sense from a policy perspective, which I tried to do in the brief, which, and which I think the majority also tried to do. But the reality, for example, as he points out, is if you look at the congressional hearings that were taking place, the numbers of which I mentioned, there's really mostly testimony from representatives of the copyright industries, um, not so much from, say, the users who, I think the term used might have been badly organized. He points out, for example, also the costs, the administrative burdens and the cost to the consumers and the users, and we were talking about conductors, performers, and so forth, of actually trying to find out if a work is now under copyright protection in the United States. And he, because of a number of these reasons, some of which, like I said, are rooted in the practicality of it, found that there was no sufficient countervailing benefit to Section 514, which is um, one big, big reason why he wrote the dissent. I mean, there were a number of other grounds. For example, you know, he he said that if you go, if you line up all the costs, some of which I've mentioned, what should be the countervailing benefit? It ought to be the incentive to create new work. And this ties into the progress clause discussion because, as we know, the Supreme Court particularly has had a pretty long history of highlighting the utilitarian perspective behind the progress clause, that in order to incentivize innovation and creativity, you know, we give these essentially monopoly rights um, for a certain period of time. And he said, you know, I just find no countervailing benefit here. And he said that because of the risk of this legislation that might have some speech-inducing harms, he said, I don't need to find that we need a heightened level of scrutiny. You know, all I need to say is that we need, as a court, to consider very, very carefully the reasons given by the government for this encroachment on the public domain. And that's an echo of some of the dissent from the Eldred case, um, actually in particular not even so much Breyer's dissent from that case, but Stevens's, where um, if you look at the Stevens dissent in Eldred, and in some ways perhaps it's a pity that he's no longer sitting um, with, with this kind of case coming out like Golan, he basically said in Eldred that the Supreme Court has quit claim to Congress <laughs> the ability you know, to examine any of these policy issues, which therefore underlines the fact that if you look at the text of the Progress Clause, if you look at the Progress Clause as read by the majority in Eldred and in Golan, that Congress does have an extremely broad latitude. And that clearly did not sit well uh, with Breyer in either Eldred or this case. I see. So what then um, – well, let me ask a, a couple of more questions. So, What did you find most surprising, if anything, from the 
um, majority or or uh, dissent of, um, about the majority decision or, or or the dissent. What did you find most surprising in the uh, if anything? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe surprise is too strong of a word, but it was certainly interesting when I read the majority decision. I did the grounds did not surprise me. Like I said, knowing who was writing the decision, mm-hmm. and even at the at the um, oral arguments, you could see that Justice Ginsburg was probably not going to shift from her position in Eldred. Um, but what was interesting was the forcefulness with which her opinion emphasized how this case, the Golan case, was essentially revisiting a lot of the arguments that the petitioners or the petitioners then had made in Eldred. Um, she really emphasized that a number of times, and in in particular also in clarifying or taking the opportunity to clarify something that the court said in Eldred. Um, one of the big issues, obviously, in both cases was, you know, if you've got a progress clause that allows Congress pretty broad authority to say, okay, we're going to now extend the term of copyright protection by 20 years or whatever. And now we've got the ability for Congress to say, actually, we're now going to protect these works that used to be in the public domain the United States. Uh, What's the constitutional impact in terms of First Amendment, for example? And the court in Eldred started to say, and here in Golan, the majority confirmed very emphatically that Copyright already has the built-in accommodations for free expression concerns, and they identified two. One was the idea-expression dichotomy, which says, you know, you can't copyright and therefore monopolize ideas. It has to be creative expression. The other is the fair use doctrine, you know, that old standby, that old workhorse. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure that I entirely expected Justice Ginsburg to say, these are the built-in accommodations and here's how they work, period. I thought she might have taken the opportunity to say there are a number of built-in accommodations, and we talked about two. So giving a little more leeway to the court, you know, um, in some ways maybe implicitly acknowledging what Justice Stevens had warned about in Eldred, um, but she didn't do that. So that surprised me just a little bit. I see. Well, thank you for that. That's great insight. What, uh, Mary, uh, just as a final uh, question, um, the Congress's broad authority under the Progress Clause really being affirmed here. What do you see uh, in the future as far as uh, will what will this holding be cited for in the future? Um, or what what do you see coming down the road in, in, in regard to uh, Congress's authority under the Progress Clause? You know, and I think, Peter, that is really the the heart of the big problem facing us in copyright law down the road. And that's why, as we were chatting, I said to you that even in deciding to file the brief, we were, you know, we we had to think about it a good long time because we were pretty convinced that the specific circumstances of this case, that the world trade environment, the need to comply with the Berne Convention, um, necessitated Congress doing something. and as you say, 514 had a number of balancing mechanisms. Could Congress have done something differently? Could they have done something that was even more flexible and liberal? Yes, they can. Yes, they could have. Um, but this was the route they chose, and the court said, this is not something that we're going to interfere with because it's something clearly within congressional power. I think this is what's going to be 
scary, if you like, going forward, that you're going to have different cases with different factual contexts, perhaps with some something that's less pressing or, to my mind anyway, with my bias in this case, that's less important, right, using that word very subjectively, obviously, than, say, compliance in an international treaty. But once you have Eldred and now Golan confirming Eldred that Congress has such broad authority, it's kind of hard to see how you're going to dial that back. On what basis, for example? And one of the things the court says here is it's not true that the public domain is inviolate. It's not true that it, it becomes something that is owned with vested rights by the public. I mean, that was a pretty strong statement. Not sure they really needed to say that. But having gone down that path, my fear, I think, is that there will be situations which are very different where these two cases taken together confirm that Congress can pretty much do what it likes as long as it doesn't go crazy. And, and, and on the basis of the progress clause, I'm also concerned as a, as a patent uh, attorney that uh, this might spill over or this, this uh, authority, it already has, but it, it, I, I'm certain there will be challenges to the recently passed American Invents Act. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, will there be reliance upon um, by, by respondent, by the government on the uh, progress clause, do you think? I think you raise a really good point, and certainly, you know, a lot of people might think, well, this is a copyright case, Eldra is a copyright case, they concern very specific, you know, me- mechanistic provisions. I think you're absolutely right, that if you look at this as a case about the progress clause, which it was, um, there are, you know, challenges and, and risks for the patent law as well. I think the only limitation, such as it is, is that it talks about you know, the limited times and exclusive rights provisions. But in this case, the court said, you know, it's not just about creating new works, but also disseminating existing works. If you transfer that to the patent arena, right, it's not just about incentivizing new inventions. It's about maybe encouraging greater dissemination and disclosure of already protected patents. I think there's certainly grave implications for patent law as well. And the last point I'll make on, on this question is that what we've seen from the Supreme Court in a number of their IP decisions, um, certainly, and I'm more familiar with the copyright ones, is that because the Progress Clause covers both patents and copyrights, the court hasn't been shy about you know, using analogies between the two. And sometimes they'll say, well, copyright and patents are kind of similar, and here's why. Sometimes they'll say, well, the patent and copyright regime are not that similar, and here's why. So they, they borrow pretty freely between the two. And in Golan itself, there was some reference to uh, patent cases about removal of inventions from the public domain. So I think we're going to see the court continue to do that, whether it's a patent or a copyright case. Thank you. Thank you for that, Mary. Uh, Well, that about does it for this edition of IP Council. And remember, you can find all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. Uh, A very special thanks to my guest, Mary Wong, for joining me today. Mary, if someone wants more information on this topic, how can they reach you? Well, they can certainly visit the website of the law school, the University of New Hampshire School of Law. It's at law.unh.edu. And the Franklin Pierce Center for IP has a section on our homepage as well. And you'll find a lot of information about the briefs that we are submitting in a number of cases, not just the one we submitted in this one on our website. Outstanding. Um, 
And of course, you can contact me at LALaw.com or email me directly at plando at LALaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, Talking Law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.